If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 8. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, Acts 8, uh, verses 26 through 40. Uh, Last week we covered chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 60. Uh, That's the passage where Stephen gives a defense before the council. And and, uh, so today we're looking at... um, after Stephen is martyred, the resulting persecution that takes place, and that's found in Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 26 through 40. If you're new to church, uh, this is the, uh, the part of our service together where um, I take a passage of Scripture and just teach it and try to make some application uh, to it. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the book of Acts, the Bible is actually 66 different books. It's not just one book, but 66 different books. Uh, 27 books of the New Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament. And the amazing thing about the Bible is that uh, written on three continents over a uh, several thousand year period by over 30 different authors from many different walks of life, and yet it has uh, continuity, it has unity, it has a a uh, consistent message, a theme of redemption that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's uh, a unified message. And the, the miracle of that is, let's just say you ask 25 people of various ages from around the United States over a 20-year period to write a letter about God. And you were just to bind that up, right? People from all around the nation in a 10-year period Uh, various ages, couldn't put together a unified theme with a coherent message about who God is, but this just demonstrates the beauty of God, how He can uh, orchestrate 66 different books from a a lot of different authors, put together a book about who He is that uh, has that much uniformity and and, uh, and, uh, a united message. So the the Bible is extraordinary. Uh, The Bible says about itself that its words will never the flowers fade. Uh, The Word of God will never pass away. It will be consistent with us. Uh, So this morning we're in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And just a little bit of context. After Stephen's martyrdom, uh, uh, the last verse in chapter 7 says that uh, all those who stoned him to death laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And uh, Saul becomes Paul. Uh, But Saul ravages the church. A great persecution breaks out against the church. And and as a result of that Jerusalem persecution that started with the martyrdom of Stephen, there arose this great persecution. And all these people are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. All except the apostles. They buried Stephen and they lamented over him. Uh, but eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 3 says, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Can you imagine somebody coming into your house and dragging you out of the house and sending you to prison for being a Christian? This is the level of persecution that's taking place. Those who were able to escape Jerusalem and that persecution, they went about preaching the Word of God. And this is um, part of Luke's purpose, right? Luke's purpose in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is telling the disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And so right at the very beginning of Luke, he sets out his purpose in the book to demonstrate how the gospel gets from the upper room with 120 disciples to Acts 18, where the entirety of Asia heard the word of God, like I read earlier, to the end of Acts in 28, when Paul is in Rome, and he's already written to the Romans saying, there's no more work for me in this area of North Africa, um, the Middle East, and Europe, and I'm hoping you can send me on my way to Spain. That just shows you that in a 30-year period, imagine that, from 35 maybe to 65, certainly the book of Acts was completed before the destruction of the temple in 72, otherwise that would have been mentioned. So in 30 years, the gospel has made its way around the entire Mediterranean. And Paul is saying, hey, if you guys can send me to Spain on the farthest edge, and maybe from there I can go out. That's part of Luke's purpose, is to demonstrate how the gospel goes from the upper room to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we see evidence of that in our passage today with this Ethiopian eunuch, but we also see it in chapter 8 where they're spread because of the persecution to Samaria and to Judea. That was in Acts 1.8. So let's look at the passage together. Well, before we do that, let's just get a quick bio. We want to know who Philip is. Uh, Philip, you remember, started, was introduced to us in Acts chapter 6. Um, in the daily distribution of food, uh, some of the Grecian Jews were being overlooked. And so there was partiality, right? Ross preached that sermon in, in uh, December about a sin of partiality that um, the Hellenistic Jewish widows were supposed to receive food every day, but they were being overlooked. And so one of the people distributing food said, well, I only have 10 loaves of bread left and there's... Uh, I got 25 widows on the list that need food today. Let's make sure that the Jewish Hebrew widows are taken care of. And then if there's any left over, we'll give it to these others. And so that was not pleasing to God or to the congregation or to the apostles. And so they came up with a way. They ordained seven men who would be a part of the daily distribution of food. And they delegated it to deacons, to these humble servants. And there were some parameters that had to be true about those deacons. What were they? They had to be full of the Holy Spirit. They had to be full of wisdom. They had to be of good reputation. So all those things that qualified those seven men are obviously true of Philip. So if you're wondering who Philip is, he was one of those seven, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of a good reputation, just in the same way that Stephen was introduced. Now we're introduced to this guy um, named Philip, who was one of those seven deacons. We know that he was a servant. He was willing to just quietly, humbly distribute bread and to do so with, uh, with a happy heart. And so that's who Philip is. We also, was in, or, uh, was, we also were introduced to him when Keith preached on chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. And Keith uh, demonstrated that, that Philip went about preaching in Samaria. And in that early part of Samaria, they experienced a revival as well. Those who scattered, looking back at verse 4 of chapter 8, 
Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip is proclaiming the gospel to Samaritans. You remember Jesus proclaimed the gospel to the Samaritan woman in John 4, and, uh, and that whole city rejoiced. Now Philip even is experiencing that same sort of fruitfulness, so much so that Peter and John are called in to investigate. Now, getting into our text here, in verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and went. Where was Philip? He was in Samaria, right? He was in a village in Samaria, experiencing this incredible movement. Uh, Theologians call this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans a second Pentecost. Uh, This is a place where um, was not... Worship was not centered in Samaria, right? That was the argument that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman. You guys say we should worship there. We say we should worship here. Well, now the the presence of God has moved from the temple and the most holy place. Now it's falling on the Samaritans even. Philip is there. Um, Philip is now told to leave there. (laughs) Have you ever been in a really good place spiritually? Maybe you're at a great church, or maybe you are at a great summer camp, or maybe you're at a great retreat, and you're, you're hearing the Word of God, and you're praying, and you're witnessing, and you're experiencing this uh, wonderful, refreshing worship, and, and then, you know, there's like an ending time. People often call that or refer to that as some sort of a spiritual mountaintop experience. And referring to Jesus and Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was this mountaintop experience where the glory of God comes down and Jesus is transfigured in front of them and the the voice of God comes down and He speaks and He says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And then immediately, like Peter's like, hey, let's just build some shelters up here. Can't we just hang out here? Have you ever had an experience like that where you don't want it to end? Um, yeah, I think we've had those experiences before. We don't want a season to end. We don't want a, a retreat to end, or we don't want one of these experiences to end. We want to stay there in the presence of God, experiencing the peace of God, and in all these ways, Philip is told to go leave this place where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is happening, where he's being used by God to heal people and preach the gospel, and all these people are being saved. It's a place of great joy is what um, the end of that passage said in in chapter 8. There was so much joy in that city. uh, Chapter 8, verse 8. Peter's been told to go to the desert. Listen, the desert, when I toured Israel, they said, if you want to be wise, go to the wilderness. But if you want to be wealthy, go to the north. There's people, there's an abundance of water, there's abundance of resources, there's abundance of wealth, there's abundance of opportunity. But only those who wanted to be wise went south to the wilderness. It's dusty, it's dry, there's no water, uh, there's not a lot of scenery, it's the same color, uh, it's filled with self-denial and blandness and... There's nothing to do but meditate and pray. You remember the Spirit drove Jesus where? After His baptism? Into the wilderness. This is that experience. 
If you were Philip and you were in Samaria experiencing this and the Lord said, hey, I want you to get up and go to the desert by yourself, (laughs) how would you feel, right? How would you respond? We see here that Philip immediately obeyed. He immediately obeyed. We used to teach our kids first-time obedience, right? Delayed obedience is disobedience, right? And when, when we ask you to do it, there, there's no countdown, three, two, one. There's no, when, when we say we want you to do this, we mean do it now or there's repercussions. There's consequences for delayed obedience, which is actually disobedience. This first-time obedience is what our Father desires of us. And so as a way of parenting, we desired it for our kids. And so there would be a thump on the finger or a pop on the behind, or if there wasn't immediate first-time obedience, there was, there was an issue because we wanted to enforce this, reinforce this with our kids that delayed obedience is disobedience and, and first-time obedience is what was desired. Philip, we have zero indication that he, ah, but Lord, you see what's happening here in Samaria? You see all the great things that you're doing through me? You see all the work that's happening here? Why would I go to the desert? Why would I go to the wilderness? There's no delay. Philip immediately obeyed. And this obviously pleases the Holy Spirit. Continuing in that verse, it says, um, And there was, uh, an, rise and go toward the, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Let's just stop here. And let's just get to know this Ethiopian. Ethiopia was an area in North Africa, not quite the country of Ethiopia that we know today, more of the upper Nile region. Biblically, it's called the Kingdom of Cush. Uh, It was filled, um, as you might expect, Um, it was a a black kingdom. Uh, And so just, I love this point here. Uh, Many of my commentaries pointed it out that God, the God of the Bible knows no partiality to skin tone. When the gospel is being proclaimed, it almost immediately goes south, east, north, and west. We learn from Thomas. Many people attribute salvation in India to the Apostle Thomas. Um, The gospel goes out and it knows no boundaries, no racial boundaries. And I love this. God desires His kingdom to be filled with men and women from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So I say that to us here just to reinforce what you already know, that there is no place in Christianity for racism, for sinful racism or division. Ethiopia in this upper Nile region, um, this man was a minister of finance for the queen of the Ethiopians. And he was a eunuch, which is, you know, what you probably think a eunuch is. I'm not going to go into a lot of details about that. If you'd like to know more, get a good study Bible and read the notes. But the bottom line is this man didn't have any kids and he probably wouldn't have any kids. Uh, it was common in those, in those days to help your government officials remain dedicated and focused uh, to take certain actions to make sure that they have no other um, rival attention, anything that would take their attention. 
interesting enough, the Bible mentions eunuchs a lot. They're, they weren't allowed in the temple due to their condition, according to the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But also interestingly enough, this eunuch is reading in Isaiah, and Isaiah has a particular future prophecy for a person in this condition. In Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 8, uh, the promise is, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. That's this guy. The Lord will separate me from his people. In the future, let not the foreigner who has followed the Lord say, the Lord has separated me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give to them in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Isn't it interesting that he's reading in a scroll the book of Isaiah, which is the only book that contains a promise for someone in his condition. And that prophecy continues in Isaiah 56. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps that Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. He's reading this, right? He's not quite there. We're going to learn in a minute. But this Ethiopian eunuch is holding fast to these promises. And we learn at the end of verse 27 that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And then he was returning Verse 28, uh, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over there and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Let's just pause here. I want to point out here that there are two gifts present. There's the gift of the Word. And you might think, well, that's sufficient. He's got the scroll of Isaiah and he's reading the Word. But it's not sufficient for him to understand. God also provides a teacher and both are necessary. Before I was saved, before I became a Christian, I used to sneak this big, clunky, old Catholic Bible that sat on our mantle as like a good luck charm kind of a thing. And I was embarrassed to read it. I didn't have another Bible. So I would go out there and I would get it and I would put it on my bed and I would just open this big thing up and I would start reading. And I read in Genesis. I read in Exodus. I got a little bogged down in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but but I didn't understand it. I, I did my best. I tried to read. I was lost. Right? Paul told the Corinthians the things of the Spirit are discerned by those who have the Spirit, but the mind that is unregenerate does not understand. And I didn't understand. This man didn't understand. He needed both the Scripture and the teacher. I also want you to see that he, he and Philip, this passage is filled with questions. 
It's filled with questions. Philip uses questions to get into the gospel, to get into the chariot. Like he's just jogging next to the chariot. Maybe he's sprinting. I don't know how fast this chariot was going. And Philip just says, hey, do you know what you're reading? Great question. The eunuch answers with the question. How, how am I supposed to know what I'm reading? Unless somebody teaches me. So he invited him up. And then he sees where he's reading. Verse 32. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. That's what he was reading. That's the exact passage that he was at. And the eunuch said to Philip in verse 34, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? For those of us who are Christ followers, this is what you call putting a tea, you know, ball on a tea and handing a bat to somebody and saying, this is how you can share the gospel with this guy. It's, a, it's the easiest lead into the gospel ever. I was driving to Dallas one time with a, a youth group that I was a youth minister of in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And we were going to this, some sort of a tournament or something. And there were 15 or so people in the, in the bus. And, and one girl uh, asked this great question. She's not a believer. She said, will there be animals in heaven? And uh, so we all talked about our pets and all that. And we started to ask if there will be animals in heaven and all these things. And, and that conversation fizzled out. And about an hour later, she picked up my Bible and began reading through it. And she found revelation. I, I found all this out later. But a couple hours after that, I picked up my Bible and I saw the note tucked in it and I read it and it was at a place in Revelation and she had written in my Bible in this note, hey, you said that there were, were or, or you weren't sure if there would be animals in heaven, but this passage says that there's a lamb who was slain in heaven. Who is the lamb, right? That's what you call like teeing it up and, and make the Holy Spirit giving you the perfect opportunity to share the gospel. That's exactly what happened here. The Ethiopian eunuch, right? About who is he talking about, himself or someone else? We call these intersections divine appointments. We hear the phrase, it just so happened, right? It just so happened that the Holy Spirit told Philip to go to this particular place in the desert. And it just so happened that he was in good enough shape to sprint next to a moving chariot, right? That couldn't be true for all of us. It couldn't be true for me. The Lord said, hey, go run next to that car for a minute. I'd be like, oh, hey, we got to get into the gospel quick because I don't know if I can sustain this pace. Uh, you might get like a Matt Freed who could like jog for 15 miles next to the chariot or something like that, but, but not me. Um, it just so happened that he was able to do this, that he ran next to the chariot, that it, he got there at just the right place on the road, that the, at just the right moment, it just so happened that the Ethiopian was passing by, who just so happened was reading the exact portion of Isaiah 53, and it just so happened that Philip knew the gospel and those, that intersection where a person who knows the gospel and a person who's been prepared to hear the gospel, that intersection is called a divine appointment. And I love these stories. I have a whole notebook where I've tried to compile the glory of God in the expression of the gospel in these divine appointments. I had a friend, Eric, grew up in Chicago, was kind of a low-level errand boy for a local sort of 
organized crime. Uh, and, and when he shares his story and the things that he did and the uh, depression that it led to and the self-loathing and the hatred that he had, that as he became suicidal, there was a time when he just wanted to step out into traffic. And, and he said, um, uh, as I was about to do this, uh, I just said, God, if you have any thing to say to me, now's the time. And just at that moment, a, a piece of paper blew down the street and stopped right in front of him. And, and as the paper flipped over one more time right in front of his feet, it was a, a child's Sunday school crayon coloring note that says, Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life. And it just flipped over right and the wind is still blowing and he sees this. And it's just this moment where God is intersecting at just the right moment, at just the right time, with just the right message with this person. These divine appointments are beautiful and we see it right here. Uh, continuing on with our passage in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? He responded to the gospel. They see um, a pool of water, enough water for him to go down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I love that phrase. There's a lot we could focus on. Did Philip have some sort of teleportation experience, right? Was he, the eunuch saw him no more. He found himself at Azotus. The language kind of hints at that. Or did Philip just run off? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But I don't want to lose that for verse 35, or answer that to lose verse 35. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with Scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. What's the good news? The good news is that your sins can be forgiven. The good news is that your sins can be forgiven. I, I often tell you this, Jesus, when a person was brought to him for healing, would often first say, your sins are forgiven. Meaning that that was his or her greatest need was the forgiveness of sins. Just this week in our staff meeting, uh, Cherie and Chris and I uh, do a devotional through Alistair Begg and one of his books. And this week it was about the atonement of Christ. Pictured in the Old Testament through these two goats. Right, The high priest would take two lambs, innocent and pure, and on one lamb, they would slay the lamb and take some of the blood and they would um, uh, uh, apply it so that their sins could be forgiven. The sins of the nation would be forgiven. And then the other goat, they would take some of the blood and put it on its head and drive it far away from the wilderness. And these two lambs demonstrate the unity of the one picture of Jesus. That in Jesus, the Lamb of God, the sins of the world can be paid for that's the first lamb. And that our sins can be remembered no more, driven far away from us. That's the second lamb. And in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. That's the good news. You can be forgiven of your sins. God remembers them no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. 
So what can we do in conclusion? How can we, how can we apply this passage? <clears throat> I have um, three things that I want to share with you in conclusion based on this passage. Number one, <clears throat> the application for us, for this congregation, find a place of humble service. It's incredible to see how God used Philip later, right? He's going to go on to plant a church in Caesarea in Acts 21.8. Paul is going to be coming back down into Jerusalem and he stops off at Caesarea and he's ministered to by Philip and his four prophesying daughters. It's amazing to see the way God uses Philip, healing people, sharing the gospel, doing all these incredible things. But, but where did Philip start? Handing out bread to widows. Oftentimes we want God to use us in these incredible, huge ways. But we don't want to serve bread. He didn't start in this incredible place of service. He started in a humble and lowly place of service. Oftentimes we start in small places of service and humility in the kingdom of God. I remember being out of ministry, uh, having failed in ministry as a 21, 22, 23-year-old and just renting cars. And, and then at some point, the Lord put it back on my heart to get back into ministry. And I said, well, how do I start? And I was visiting this church called Northwest where I met Julie and a disciple maker. And I didn't tell anybody, and I don't say this. I try not to give like pat on the back Gibson stories you know, in my sermons. But, but this is one of those things that the Lord led me to do that I was so blessed by. But I found the dirtiest bathroom on the property. And, and every time I was in the building, I committed to quietly clean it. Just, I thought, Lord, if I can be in charge of this toilet, of this bathroom, your word says if a, a person is faithful in the small things, that he will be made in charge of bigger things. And so... Without telling anybody, I just made it my goal that every time I'm on site, I'm going to go straight to that bathroom and I'm going to lock the door and I'm going to mop the floor. I'm going to clean the floor. I had cleaning stuff hidden and it was my ministry. And then shortly after, maybe three months after, a guy asked me to co-teach a Bible study with him. And shortly after, I was asked to lead a Bible study. And then shortly after, I was asked to uh, lead a department. And then I was asked to come on staff and plant a church for that congregation. And, and we left there after five years uh, and, and I cleaned that bathroom for the last time. But it was one of those things that the Lord showed me. Humility and servanthood is the place to start. I see in this congregation, uh, people like Brian or Janine or Ryan Eyre or Steve Aldifer, the Watson family, Cora, Denise Kaiser and all the counters, Kevin Weiss building the platform out here where our sign is. I see all over this congregation, many others who show up, you know, and clean up and do humble acts of service without anybody knowing. This church is filled with people who understand the call to humbly serve the Lord in whatever position is needed, whether they want it or not. And this is a test for me. I heard uh, David Jeremiah say he was interviewing a guy to be a pastor on staff and when the guy walked in for the interview, David Jeremiah, this pastor of a huge church in California, Shadow Mountain Church, uh, David Jeremiah was down in the area, Fellowship Hall area, setting up tables and chairs. 
I was just telling Megan Tarby this week, we were setting up for a reception, and I was moving tables and chairs, and I said, I didn't realize how much a ministry was moving tables and chairs when I first started. But David Jeremiah, this, he was talking to this guy, and he said, we can do our interview in a minute. Let's move tables and chairs. And this guy said, well, I don't really move tables and chairs. And he said, well, this interview's over. Because in the kingdom of God, humble servant spirit matters. What did Jesus do with his disciples? On the night that he was betrayed, he took off his robe and he put on a towel and he got on his hands and knees and he began to wash their feet. And he said, if I, your master, do this, then you should do this for each other. Is there any task in this congregation that you won't do? Do you attend here on a weekly basis and say, ah, that's for somebody else. Somebody else can do that or that's for them. That's kind of beneath me. I, I can't do that. Before I ever asked Matt Freed to be the chairman of the search team, before he was ever a small group leader, three or four years ago, I said, hey, will you be in charge of shoveling snow? And I, I tell you, it was a, a test for leadership for me. Because every single time it snowed, and it snowed a lot that year, I never had to make a phone call. Owen and Skyler and Matt would show up and they were just shoveling snow every single time it snowed. If you can't shovel snow by yourself without anybody watching, without anybody patting you on the back, Matt didn't know I was going to say this today and he didn't maybe even know that that's some sort of weird test of leadership that I have, but, but I want to know if you have humility and a servant's heart before you'll ever be elevated to any other position, are you going to be here picking up trash in the parking lot by yourself. If you want to be something in the kingdom of God, you better be ready to be nothing, to empty yourself, and to take on the nature of a servant because God doesn't use people who aren't humble servants. That's number one. All right? I was a little excited about that one, so it's a little longer. But, but here's a second application point from this text. Be filled with the Spirit and be open to His leading in your life. And I'm not going to spend as much time on this because I preached a whole sermon about it two weeks ago about distinguishing the difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit versus the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit if we're in Christ. The presence of God indwelling us. Ephesians 1, He gives us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. 1 Corinthians 6, the, the Spirit, um, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within believers, regenerate, born-again believers. But the filling of the Holy Spirit speaks directly to your openness and your yieldedness and the amount of control that you allow the Spirit to exert influence over your life. Is that clear? You can wake up in the morning and you can say, I'm going to do this and this and this and I'm going to sin in this way or I'm going to do this. You can have your own agenda and you can live by it or you can wake up in the morning and you can say, Lord, I give this day to you. Whatever happens, wherever you lead me, I will go. Whatever you tell me to say, I will say. Whoever you tell me to talk to, I'll talk to. This is your day. I'm your humble servant and your follower. You help me be sensitive to the still small voice that leads me. 
Sometimes people are uncomfortable with this language, and they think because of the abuses of a charismatic movement that the Holy Spirit doesn't lead us and guide us. But let me tell you, uh, share this quote with you from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is far, far, far from a charismatic. But when asked about being filled with the Spirit and being led by the Spirit and a biblical practice from this passage, he said this, Here again is the most extraordinary subject, that of being filled with the Spirit and being led with the Spirit. He said, indeed, it's a fascinating topic and one from many angles and a most glorious one. There is no question but that God's people can look to the Holy Spirit and expect leadings and guidance and indications of what they are meant to do. There are many examples of this in Scripture, and he he points out this passage in Acts 8.26. And then he says... That God's people, if you read the history of the saints, God's people throughout the centuries, and especially the history of revivals, you will find that this is something which is perfectly clear and definite. Men and women have been told by the Holy Spirit to do something. They knew it was the Holy Spirit speaking to them, and it transpired in such a way that it was obviously His leading. It seems clear to me that if we deny that such a possibility exists... That is, that if you deny that the Holy Spirit can personally direct your spirit to do something, to say something, to go somewhere in a day, he says that it is clear to me that we are guilty of quenching the Spirit. If you're not operating in a Spirit-filled way, where the Holy Spirit is allowed to be the leader of your daily life, and you're open to His leadership and you're clearly saturated with the Word so you can discern the voice of the Spirit from the voice of your flesh, which is a big deal, right? Because if I feel like I want Chick-fil-A in a day, I can't always say that that's the Holy Spirit leading me to drive to Chick-fil-A in a day. Sometimes I have to discern like, hey, maybe the Spirit wants you to fast a little bit, you know, and, and not go eat out today or something along those lines. We can miss the Spirit for our flesh if we're not careful enough to listen to the Spirit and if we're not saturated by the Word of God. We see the leadership of the Holy Spirit all over the New Testament. We see it in this congregation. When Ridgeline was um, asked and approached to merge with Rock Hill, we sought the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Even now, as we're discerning, should we um, plant a congregation at Rocky Ridge in Quakertown? We're seeking and trying to discern the leadership of the Holy Spirit as well as they are. That's point number two, all right? Be filled with the Spirit and be open to His leading in your life. And if you're confused about that, I would love to be able to help you know how that's not going to be weird and, uh, you know, like a circus. The filling of the Holy Spirit. And then the final thing is be ready to share the gospel. You know the gospel. People need the gospel. And you need to be ready to share the gospel. Uh, that's what Philip was. He knew the gospel. He was ready to share the gospel at any moment. And he, he shared the gospel. And Philip uh, led the Ethiopian eunuch to faith in Christ. And today, there is a thriving church in Ethiopia. A thriving church. And they attribute it and trace it back to this particular encounter. An entire people group are changed as a result of Philip's obedience to share the gospel with someone who needed to hear the gospel. Last week, I had lunch with Alex Robinson here, and I asked him permission if I could share this story because there was a time in his life when he would have described himself as not yet a believer, 
but as maybe a God-fearer. And he found himself in Philadelphia at a bar, and, and he was at a time in his life when he was kind of open a little bit, and a stranger walked by, and he said, um, hey, can you tell me where the bus stop is? And, and, and Alex pointed him, yeah, it's this way. And he said a little while later, the same guy came by, and he was outside, and he said, hey, do you mind if I talk to you about sin? And, and Alex you know, said, oh, okay, sure. And, and, and this guy said, you know, as I walked by, I had this deep, compelling sense that you struggle with a particular sin. And he named it. And Alex owned it and said, yeah, yeah, I do struggle. And they had this conversation that lasted, I don't know, how long did that last? Maybe 15 or 20 minutes in this Random place, the guy gets on the bus and he leaves. But, but Alex said after that, after that he had been contemplating these different religious paths that he might take. But after that, he said, I begin to pursue Jesus. I begin to look and read the Bible and pursue it. And here Alex, one of our worship leaders, a guy that I've walked through discipleship material with, <clears throat> as a result of someone who knew the gospel, as a result of somebody who needed the gospel, the Holy Spirit quarterbacked this divine appointment and this encounter so that here's this guy who knows and loves Jesus and leads us in worship that is here today that might not have been here had it not been for someone being obedient to the Spirit. Now listen, you have that opportunity. Do you know the gospel? Could you share the gospel today if somebody said, who's the lamb, right, in the book of Revelation, who's the lamb? Or who's the suffering servant? Is he talking about himself? If somebody approached you and asked that, are you capable to share the gospel? That's my charge to you. Be ready to share the gospel. Obediently filled with the Spirit. That's our application for today. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that we've been able to consider today. So much meat here and so much practical application. I pray that you would give us Discernment to know how that we can best put it into practice. I thank you that, uh, that I myself am a result. My salvation is a result of an obedient man going door to door, sharing the gospel that knocked on my door uh, 30 years ago tomorrow. Uh, I praise you that as a result of his obedience and sharing the gospel and then just moving on to the next house, he has no idea the work that you've done in me and through me as a result of that divine appointment. I pray for those in this congregation. I pray that there would be stories and baptisms five years from now that start with, it just so happened that this guy I work with or this neighbor I coach with or this person I walk with or this guy that I get coffee from, that all these stories of people who might come to know you in the future, that its genesis would be from the, reading this passage today, that the gospel would be declared by someone who knows it to someone who needs it, and that you would use us for your glory in that way. Help us not to miss those opportunities. For your own glory and for the building up of your church and your kingdom, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.